0: Hey, Greggie, we're talking about our favorite topic today, codependency, and then after that, I thought we could spend some time talking about our relationship. Doesn't <laughs> that sound fun?
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, buckets of fun.
0: I'm Kelly Llewellyn.
1: And I'm Greg Homme. And this is Caveman.
0: And Counselor.
1: Today, we're gonna get real about codependency and how it affects our relationship and overall happiness. Before we begin, we wanna provide a content warning. This podcast is meant for informational purposes only, and is not intended to provide direct help or replace professional advice for individuals experiencing mental health issues. If you or someone you know is struggling, we encourage you to seek out the guidance of a qualified professional.
0: So what is codependence, you ask? Well, there are a lot of different um, definitions, but one thing for sure, it's not a diagnosis, it's a diagnostic manual. We will be discussing definitions of codependency in our podcast, From but for now, just think of it as a learned behavior in response to trauma. People with codependent behavior focus on others rather than focusing on themselves. So while it's tough to pin down the exact numbers on codependency, research tells us that it's pretty common, especially in relationships where addiction or substance abuse is involved. An interesting study from the Journal of Substance Abuse Treatment found that nearly half of the partners in relationships with someone abusing substances showed codependent behaviors. I would guess it's probably even higher. In this episode, we're going to hear from a brave individual who is in recovery from codependency, sharing their inside struggles, and triumphs on their journey toward healthier relationships. And to further analyze and discuss the questions raised by our guests, we are delighted to have Dr. Sandy Island's expert in codependency joining us on the show. Dr. Island's expertise will offer valuable guidance and shed light on the often misunderstood nature of codependent relationships.
1: If you're a mental health professional, someone experiencing codependency, or simply curious to learn more about these essential topics, this episode is for you. Grab your headphones, settle in, And join us as we unravel the complexities of codependency and its impact on our lives. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to Caveman and Counselor on your favorite podcast platform. And please leave us a review. Careful, I'm sensitive. Your support not only helps us continue to deliver meaningful content, but also helps others discover this transformative podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and let's dive into today's episode.
0: I'd like to introduce Dr. Sandy Island. Sandy, um, you are a expert in codependency and addiction and have worked in the field. How many years now?
2: Uh, Well, I've been a licensed therapist for over 35 years. Um, I've been in my own addiction recovery for more than 30 years and my codependency recovery for probably around 27 years or so, Mm -hmm. Um, not to mention studying it and running groups and And teaching, but yeah.
0: Well, thank you very much. And so, you know, you and I have worked together in the past with clients, um, working with clients with addiction, working with their family members, codependency and friends. Um, So thank you for coming on today. What else can you tell us about yourself and your background?
2: Well, you know, and my own relationships and codependency, Um, I've had to do a lot of my own personal work. Right. Nothing makes that. us more of an it, expert
0: than going through something ourselves, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure, definitely, exactly, right. definitely. Instead, exactly. That being said, you've also worked <laughs> at some places that are very involved with addiction and with codependency. What are some maybe some of the well-known facilities you worked at?
2: Uh, well, I've worked at Betty Ford, uh, Hazel and Betty Ford, uh, Bellamonte, Pacifica. Ken Sealy. Then I've been working with Desert Marriage and Family Counseling. Um, I had my own private practice for 20 years before I started. I was a clinical supervisor of drug court um, in Florida, and I was a director of behavioral health um, at a uh, hospital, um, kind of like a 5150 um, involuntary placement Facility where there was a lot of people with co-occurring disorders, which means they have a mental health diagnosis and a substance abuse diagnosis. So
0: you've just done a couple things, just a few things <laughs> <laughs> in, in this field. Yeah, just a few things. Um, and so uh, we'll go ahead and uh, begin jumping in with some listening just to what some of our uh, some of the interviews that we had, um, what people said to some questions that they were asked about codependency, and I. Curious to hear what your responses are, your thoughts, and maybe a couple questions for you as well. Dave is here to tell us about his story with codependency. So Dave, would you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, um, and what your history with codependency has been?
3: So my codependency started growing up um, with an alcoholic mom who was a functioning alcoholic and a very codependent dad. so that that was normal to me at a young age. Um, and then th- um, every relationship that I've had until my current relationship, so um, when I look back, every relationship was I was all in and I was always focused, and I did whatever the other person um wanted to do. you know, I left all my friends i you know, listen to this type of music or went to these movies or whatever. Um, i I got married when I was thirty two years old, and thought that I would be married once, and I would never. That was just kind of my motto. and i but twenty two years later, I figured out that I had married my mother. And so that's kind of what brought me to codependence Anonymous and start my recovery. And over the last couple of years, looking back at all the relationships, um, whether it be in personal and or business, they were, it was very codependent and very, very unhealthy. Um, So my recovery started about two years ago and it, it's changed my life, um, not only personally, but professionally also. And um, I've never been happier. I've never done more i've never um i've never turned over the reins in my business to the to my employees like i have and i've learned that i don't have to be there for every situation and be there every minute and micromanage people um and in turn that has been a lot relief to me and it's giving um given those people a lot of confidence and a lot of free reign and it's just it's, it's given that showing them that i trust them and you know everything still gets done um and everything is still okay at the end of the day
0: what do you think the co- definition of codependency is what is it to you
3: the definition of codependency to me is I've done a little bit of research, and I would say that it's um, excessive emotional or psychological reliance on a partner mm-hmm. or 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 anything for that matter in your life.
0: Dr. Allens, what would you say um, your definition of codependency is?
2: Uh, well, I was going to uh, take it to a little more like internal um, definition. And, and what I usually say to people is that it's... Um, Interacting with anyone, it can be a loved one, it can be a partner, a family member, a friend, where it's, will you love me if I become who you want me to be and do what you want me to do? And so often when I'm working with people or talking to people, they start every sentence with he or she. They're not in their own thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. They're literally in the other person's head. Mm -hmm.
0: I think the other piece of it also I think is really important is trying to change other people's behavior to be the behavior that I specifically want. Would you agree with that?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And that's actually one of the kind of awareness, I think, in the recovery of codependencies, codependency is to be able to, when you get disappointed because people aren't behaving or being how you want them to be, to be able to ask yourself, what are my expectations? Because we're really only disappointed by our expectations, not by what the other people are doing. And then you get, you unhook from your need for them to, and, and your belief, your mistaken belief that you can do something that's going to make them. Be how you want them to be. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're not gods, are we? <laughs> Sandy, uh, not at all. Not yeah, <laughs> you know, and your our mutual friend Sandy uh, Jane, Doctor Jane Godd, who also worked at Betty Ford for years, and she'll be coming on one of the podcasts. She talks. She defines codependency as a learned behavior from trauma. it's such an interesting and important perspective, because you and I know it's not a diagnosis in our DSM. Um, it is simply more of a behavior, I would say, a a learned behavior um, in order to try to Cope with my environment. So we take somebody who was a child, for example, growing up in a family with parents who are fighting over alcoholism. Somebody's drunk, and those kinds of things. And the child has some kind of behavior to try to make things better. They might try to be the good little girl or boy who makes everything okay. Um, you know, uh, they might make excuses for their parent, try to make things okay. And I just do. I that really resonates with me. It's this idea of learned behavior. Greg, I know you have some experience with codependency. Anything you want to chime in?
1: on that i really wish they'd find a different word for it because it's it's such a broad scope and um when you start reading about it and 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 experiencing it uh some of it's very uh, cathartic because you get some answers i always look at it like uh attributing to behaviors you do but you don't quite understand why you do those behaviors i mean i my personal experience and when I was raised, I was a, a neglected child. And sometimes that's in my mind, some it's worse than being a, a, an abused child because you feel like your parents don't really care about you. So, and of course you develop all these aberrant behaviors as you get older and it's like all a coping mechanism. But, uh, if you, if you look at some of these behaviors on a, on a scale and we all, we all engage in them and some of them are healthy and some of them aren't healthy and, and we can. Uh, Pretty much stay if you can stay in the middle between these behaviors, you're you're pretty set. But as soon as it the pendulum starts swinging to the to a negative uh, uh, behavior, uh, and part of it is it just kinda, it's a, just kind of it's just a way of explaining like why things why you feel the way you feel and why you do the things that you do. I mean, that was just my experience of just kind of getting dealing with my trauma and trauma showing up is like a codependency whether uh, positive or negative. So it's, it's, I really wish it wasn't that complicated. <laughs> a lot of this stuff is not, but codependency seems to be a pretty big umbrella.
0: Yeah. You and I talked about this earlier this morning, Greg, it was interesting. We talked about how when somebody's a codependent, they need to protect their serenity and not slip back into behaviors of trying to, you know, control the other person. But at the same time, if that person that they're living with or who they love is starts, you know, with negative behaviors, again, be that drinking, be that their relationship with alcohol, oh, sorry, the relationship with alcohol, be that gambling, um, be that their relationship with food, um, whatever it is, you know, how do we approach them in a way that, you know, they take care of their serenity and say something, but at the same time not try to change that person? And Dr. Island, something Greg and I talked about is Maybe that maybe saying something like you know I see you slipping back into my into your old behaviors, and I need to present that to you because I have to protect my serenity.
2: Yes, exactly. And you know when
0: you're living with people, you know yeah. Go
2: I was ahead. just gonna say, and that's I think where um, the twelve step program, Coda or Al-Anon or Nar-Anon really helps because it allows people to become aware of their powerlessness. That's the first step. You're you, you know you're powerless over um, somebody else's behavior and and your life is unmanageable because you're trying to control it. And then you mm. ideally become aware of like, it's great to express that. I see this happening to you. But then ideally to be able to say, and these are the boundaries I'm going to set for myself because I'm not going to um, try to fix, help, or change you because I know I can't, or something like that. Yeah.
0: You know, Sandy, that sound, all sounds really good. And for people listening, how does that look? Like in real life, how would that look? So you have a client, you know, just set the, set the scene, set the story, and what would you tell how, how the person is struggling with codependency do? Give an example of something that might have happened.
2: Um, well, um Usually when I recognize, I don't know if I can think of a specific example right at this moment, um, but, you know, when I recognize- Well,
0: let me let me give you an okay. example. Yeah, Let me give you an example. Let's say I'm the client and I come in and I say, you know, I started noticing, I went out to the trash yesterday and there were beer bottles stuck at the bottom. And I think he's drinking again, you know, and I just don't know what to do. Yeah. You know? I mean, I don't want to leave him. I love him and I know he's sick, but I can't go back to the way I was living. What do
2: I do? Right. And I think the the question with that would also be well, was he in recovery? And all of a sudden he just had a relapse. And also, is that.
0: Yeah. So so he was in recovery. And he had let's a relapse. say he's yeah. relapsing. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, this, this happens to folks out there all the time. Well, yeah, a lot of
2: times, you know, with clients, I'll have. We, we come up with an exit plan, like if they know that the person's going to get how they're going to get if they keep going using with their substance use and it's mm-hmm. unsafe for them, mm-hmm. where they're going to go to be safe. And also, yeah. um, you know, if they are in recovery themselves in Al-Anon or CODA, being able to reach out to their sponsor, being able to maybe do some step work on it, uh, again, being able to set boundaries with their partner that um, you yeah. can't stay here if you're going to keep drinking yeah. or using. And yeah. I've had yeah. that with with clients and, where the and the the addict or alcoholic knows that they have to go and they will usually go. And yeah. yeah. Okay. Especially if yeah. there's kids involved yeah. or, and you know it's it's not possible for the co- especially the children. codependent yeah. to leave. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah.
0: And also there're situations where the you know it doesn't have to be you know, I'm going to break up with you. No, I'm going to no. leave. There could be an inner, intermeri- yeah. yeah, an intermediate kind of conversation about that, bringing it to the person's attention that I see this is happening. You might give all kinds of reasons that you know I'm crazy. That you know those beer bottles are not yours. We hear mm-hmm. that, right? Well, those aren't my <laughs> beer bottles. You're crazy. The gardener left yeah. those. Whatever. We hear this all the time, yeah. right? So we hear those guys, kind of, and and they, and they make the codependent feel like they're wrong. Yeah.
2: And that's where actually it's a codependent who takes it on. And that's where I think that when the the codependent in their recovery starts to find their true sense of self from within, and then they really believe Mm -hmm. what they know is true. So that addict or alcoholic can start BSing them or saying that stuff, but they know Mm -hmm. it's not Mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. And they can go, Yeah, 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 but you still have to go, or I'm going to go, you -hmm. you know, whatever boundaries ideally they're going to set. But, you know, Oftentimes, like I'm thinking of even somebody who had a lot of years in recovery herself. Her husband had a lot of years in recovery, but she hadn't really worked on her codependency. And and when we, uh, I was sponsoring her um, through Al-Anon and, and she um, literally every sentence she started with, well, he said this and he did that. And when he thinks this and when he and I was just jumping in and I would say, yeah. it's not about him. Mm-hmm. It's not about him. It's not about him. Mm-hmm. What about you? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Mm-hmm. What do you know? Yeah. Kind of thing.
0: Yeah. You know, one of my favorite things to say when I really established a relationship with somebody who's a codependent and they come in with that same line, Dr. Sandy, they say again and again, well, you know, he's, I'm upset because he's doing this and he's doing that and he's the problem or she's doing this, she's doing that. I simply look at and I say, yeah, but you know, I care about you. You know, I, I've been seeing you a long time. So do I have permission to be mean? (laughs) i like to say that. And i was like, can I have permission to be mean? And I would say to you then, Dr. Sandy, if you, were the, if you were the addict, I'd say, you know, the truth is he's not the problem. Who is the problem? And then eventually, you know, they'll say, well, my dog or something else to eventually help them say, no, you're the problem because you're, what I love about addicts is addicts will tell me, oh yeah, Kelly, I'm sick. I've got a problem. I've got an addiction. If it's porn, if it's gambling, if it's food, whatever it is, um, but the person with codependency Tends to say, well, I'm not the problem. It's that other person. If they would just change. And as many people who work with addicts and codependents say, the codependent often is more sick than the addict. Yes. Because at least the addict recognizes they're sick. The codependent keeps pointing the finger at the other person.
2: Yes. And um, so just to tell
0: I love that you do that with clients. Yeah, uh-huh. to tell a really mm-hmm.
2: sad story. Um, you know, people think, Oh, we know we, that people can die of the disease of addiction. You know, we hear it all the time, but you know, think, Oh, you can never yeah, die do. of the disease mm-hmm. of codependency, but you can. And an example of that was um, this lovely, beautiful woman in her twenties. She thought she could help her boyfriend one last time, even though she had a restraining order against him. And she went to see him and he killed her and killed himself. So Mm -hmm. I mean that's Mm -hmm.
0: yeah he's probably in his disease absolutely Mm
2: -hmm. but just that that deep that desperate need to fix help or change someone in order to feel more comfortable Mm -hmm. yourself and and to know that that's really impossible Uh, like I'll often say you know thinking that you can fix help or change him you might as well just you know bang your head against a concrete Mm -hmm. wall I mean and and I find that partners are the last people on the planet who can actually really help. That's why that oftentimes, That's- even for active addicts and alcoholics, when the partner gets into their own recovery, if they can enter into you know therapy, Al-Anon, CODA, and then they start setting boundaries and changing, that will often open the freedom for the addict or alcoholic to hit their bottom and then seek recovery. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: Greg, I know you're having lots of thoughts here. Um, this is all very familiar territory for you yeah, yeah and you were in the program for a very long yeah. time you have how many years of recovery
1: 30 plus i mean i think 30 plus geez.
0: what are your as you're talking hearing about the codependent or most addicts once they recover realize they're also codependents what do you want to say about this from more of a layperson's person's perspective well,
1: it, it, that's Kind of the whole addiction thing with substances and stuff is kind of its a uniquely its own thing. But kind of codependency just kind of I think bridges just into what you would say is normal relationships or any relationship. So uh, it's just so apparent when you're dealing with the addict alcoholic and the person that's codependent or that what we would say is the al-anon. It's really emphasized. But this kind of this goes Across the whole span of relationships, in, in my belief, and that that one's very everybody understands it. Either have been in that type of relationship, or has been, you know, knows of a relationship like that with an alcoholic and and the the non-alcoholic, and how they have a how their relationship functions. Mm-hmm. But I, I see it through the whole bridge of all relationships, and also uh, that there's a trauma key somewhere in there. That um, very true that kind of links all of this together. There's some kind of trauma in and usually in their childhood or their young adulthood that kind of sets the mold as they, you know, the die is cast kind of thing. So uh I don't think everybody's immune from it. And I think some people inherently deal with situations better than others, or that or the 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 event was is not as impactful. But you know, just I just things that happened when I was a kid. That, that standing on the outside, I could easily tell you that what happened, but I wasn't feeling the feeling behind it, not really understanding it. That kind of shaped a lot of my behaviors in my adolescence and in my adulthood, until I really unpacked it. Until I went and kind of processed that trauma. And I I know everybody's that seems to be the new buzzword is trauma, but there's a reason it is because we've all had these things happen to us. And then we have behavior in our adult life that we don't quite understand why we're doing it. And usually it's a behavior that is uh, a negative effect either on you or your relationship. So,
0: Will you give an example of that, Greg? Like when you're talking about behavior. So let's say it's not, a, it's not an addiction. It's not a, a family with addiction in it, uh, but we still have people behaving codependently, trying to change other people's behavior, trying to adapt, um, keep things okay because of their history of trauma. What's something that you saw yourself doing or seen yourself doing um, that you realized was really a trauma response and maybe an inappropriate way of handling a situation in your relationship?
1: All right, whenever that question kind of comes up, because I, I, lately I've, I've been preaching it <laughs> to everybody I know that a little bit about their life and, and the trauma they had is like I was a little kid, seven, eight years old, and uh, my parents basically, uh, I was supposed to meet them. At, at, it was at an Ocean City, Ocean City New Jersey, and, and I was a little kid, but we made a deal that I would meet them back at, at, at this certain period of time. And I was really and diligent, and made sure that I met them back there at this time. And I was there, and it was getting late, and it was like dark and it started getting cold. And then my my and you're seven, and I'm seven, <laughs> and my mom shows up, right? and finally shows up. And um my reaction was as I was like feigning, or I think they use that term now as part of it, a trauma response, feigning to it, saying, oh, it's okay. but I was scared and I was furious that they, they left me there for two hours and all these different things. But I could tell you that story almost at any time. But I didn't realize that what that all was about was I used to visualize when we were processing it is like a an abutment, you know, which is this concrete pillar and they put the light pole on top, right? And I always thought through my whole life that I had the hard, a hard spot, something I would take people and beat them against. You know that that was my that was my core strength, and when I was processing it, that popped into my mind. I'm like, "That's what I was doing: is taking them against my trauma and beating them against the light pole."
0: How have you done that with people in your life? So What's like that? in your life, what, so people can under, So listeners can understand what be, behaviorally how that looks. What's a simple behavior you might have had that you realize now was beating them against a lamppost?
1: Oh, I, I could shut off emotionally, completely. With the person oh, so withdrawing it, yourself? Yeah, withdrawing. Like it's them. a defense mm-hmm. mechanism. And that's mm-hmm. the that's the event that I I remember as like basically being traumatized, feeling like I was all left mm-hmm. alone and all those internal feelings. Mm-hmm. Right. So I would be able to take people uh, and and uh, it's really would hard it maybe to maybe attack
0: them more. Would you do no, more attack? No, it's just them? It,
1: I just would basically detach from them emotionally mm-hmm. and physically. Mm-hmm. And it's like mm-hmm. that's you've you've got the hard part of me now. Now you mm-hmm. see it kind of thing. And I, mm-hmm. I I never really understood why I was did that because at one point I was telling me, well, that that that's the anchor that that it uh, shows basically builds my personality is that one hard spot.
0: But so you were trying that, to change other people's yeah.
1: behavior by withdrawing? Or oh, no. It's just a defense mechanism.
2: Well, also just yeah. hearing that and it's, like, it's if I could jump sure. in for a second, it's like you were as sure, you please. said, I was a neglect neglected child. And so what was happening or what you felt, I would think, would be that your parents, you know, withdrew and detached emotionally and you know, they might have been physically present, but They weren't like seeing you, hearing you, and validating you, especially your feelings. And so then, what you just described is, even though we'll say, "I'll never be like them," then we do the same thing because it becomes sort of an.
0: Which is why I call you Doctor Sandy Island. (laughs) That's an becomes an unconscious pattern, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. What do you think, Greg? You agree with that?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely, (laughs) and it's and you would always say, "I would never be like my parents," but even sometimes you try yeah, yeah. as much as you want you just can't it's just that part yeah. inside of you but the other part is is finding that part inside and you t- kind of like untangling it you know processing yeah. it and then you're able to move move on. And you know, we've all had like events like that. Yeah. Well, you like know, you're saying, really you made it seminal. conscious.
2: You know, it was unconscious. You were yeah. doing it unconsciously, yeah. and then you made it conscious. And that yeah. allows you to change and do things differently. Yeah,
1: know. absolutely.
2: Yeah. But
0: but also not to minimize. So that's something I don't know if you you know, not to minimize you were a seven-year-old left out at a park by themselves. I mean, I don't know who does that. And even back in the 1970, and then they were they were late. I mean, and left you in the dark. I mean, that isn't that is not at all healthy parenting. So, no, not everybody goes through those kinds of things, Greg.
1: Oh, I, yeah. I, I, I appreciate that, too. But I, then another the mm-hmm. thing is, but everybody's got their thing. You know, sure. something yeah. that's happened, you but know,
0: not everybody's codependent because they have not. Everybody's had a lot or they haven't had. Not everybody's had trauma. Significant trauma. That yeah. is true. It I is think true.
2: too what I, I like that Greg mentioned, um, you know, that it becomes a coping mechanism. So we create these coping mechanisms to survive our childhoods, but then when we're adults, they don't work for us anymore. They're dysfunctional. And that's what, you know, these recovery programs and therapy gives us the opportunity to look at at some of these things that we don't need anymore and like i love that greg kept saying reprocess because i think that's what we do we get to reprocess these events and these traumas and so that they're not we're not act they're not activated now in the present in our adult lives Mm
0: -hmm. yeah That's why you and I enjoy using, you know, reprocessing types of therapies with clients because they really need to take that and reprocess it in their prefrontal cortex rather than, you know, where it occurred and, you know, their lower brainstem, so they can look at it a different way and physically and emotionally feel different after they respond after they reprocess. Let's turn our attention to another intriguing audio clip. We talk about the word like qualifier, I believe, is the word that's used in codependency, that someone who quali- who you're currently might be acting with in a codependent way. Um, but what helped you first realize that it wasn't the person who was using or being the problem that was a problem, but rather yourself, that you were the problem, that you were allowing yourself to stay in that painful situation? What helped you really see that?
3: Um. My therapist helped me a lot in that. Um, You know, throughout my whole life, my recovery started about two years ago. And when I look back at all my relationships um, and everything that I did up until two years ago, I was always focused um, and trying to control other people or other situations. And I never looked at myself. Um, I always thought, I was always right no matter what, no matter, you know, personally or professionally. Even if I knew I wasn't right, I would still justify that I was right or what I was doing or saying was right. And so there was always one common denominator, and that was me. So when I started to look at myself and the way I was behaving and acting, um, kind of the light bulb went on and it's a lot easier and a lot less work to just worry about myself what's in my little my little circle of dave um, rather than trying to control everyone in every other situation yeah. it got i didn't realize how much work and how much energy it took from me to try to control everything else except for myself
0: such a great response i really appreciated his response especially that he is so able to see that he was the issue. He was allowing all these things to occur. And he certainly, when he tells his told his story earlier that we listened to, you know, we know that that came from, you know, the, growing up with a mom who was an alcoholic, as he talked about, um, and trying to kind of make things better. And he's a person who's definitely uh, very successful in life, but he was able to realize that his codependency was even kind of holding him back at work. You know, I think that's the hardest thing for sometimes as a therapist when I'm working with somebody's codependency is just what we talked about before getting them to see that they are in their way, that they really are the problem. And, you know, so what is what do you want to say to that dr Sandy or to Greg Greg what do you want to say to that to what, to what we just heard Dave say
1: well I, I think we all uh, understand a part a portion of that you know and and I, I have a tendency to try to always want to be the boss I always want to run the show I want to always do things my way and part of that is just trying to control your environment Um. I, I had a, a realization, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago that when I was anxious and feeling uh, upset, I would basically go make someone else anxious and feel upset. Just, it's just so I felt that, that I was passing that on and I got some relief from it. Then I didn't, I never realized I did that until I caught myself doing that. And I realized, wow, well, that's not really, that's not a good thing. So it just is is this doesn't match directly what he's saying, but I, I understand that part of it of like why we try to control things, uh, out of our own uh, insecurity or anxiety or you yeah. know wanting to to protect yourself by you know well, controlling yeah, the situation.
0: That's such a good point because I don't know how many clients I know who grew up in homes with you know with whatever the problem was domestic violence substance abuse, um, you know just just. Bad behavior, whatever it was. You know, with the child realized at some point, Greg, they were, it was better for them to be in charge. And sometimes they were put in charge. And so it makes a lot of sense that codependents running around in the world trying to be in charge because what they grew up in was not so great. Sandy, what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, that's what I, um, well, in Al Anon, they they talk about the three C's, which for people that are, you know, trying to like, Mm -hmm. you can't control Mm -hmm. it, you can't, You didn't cause it, you can't control it and you can't cure it. Mm -hmm. And so to me, control has always been fueled by fear. So, sort of like what Dave was saying, um, you know, when he was able to like recognize that he was trying to be the boss and trying to be, you know, know everything and, um, like it's, it's sort of like arrogant, you know, and the opposite of arrogance is humility. And so I think, in recovery we like learn to let go which is sort of an act of faith that i don't need to be in control here i can let this go and see see what unfolds yeah. so, you know an example
0: yeah. of something like that is like let's say i have let's say i know somebody and she she is very successful professionally and she pays all the bills and she takes care of the kids and her husband isn't working and he or or her wife, or whatever, and that that person's laying around the house, not doing anything all day, and she comes home to a dirty house, and people around her say, well, why do you keep this person around? I mean, you do everything. And her response is, because I need them. I'm not okay without them. And the the rest of people look at them and go, what are you talking about? It'd be so much easier in your life without this person. And yet, you're absolutely right, Sandy. There's like this fear of being alone, or this... Fear of not having that person even though they don't make any sense this person in their life and if they had boundaries right, and times I think yeah if they had boundaries with this person this person might go to work they might clean up they might help with the kids you know they just but they kind of become this over functioner and allow other people to under function that diode
2: uh, yeah mm-hmm. and then they then they can you know resent it. Oh yeah, and that that's a place of control and sort of live in the victim martyr dance. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know where, and that happens oftentimes with active alcoholics or addicts, where you know when the when the addict or alcoholic is being abusive, then the partner becomes the victim, and then when the addict or alcoholic is hung over the next day, then the partner becomes the martyr mm-hmm. and gets to tell them. Like yeah. how bad they were, and then and both of those states of victim and martyrdom are suffering states.
0: To kind of get and used to you're never going to
2: gonna find joy and peace. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And yet it becomes familiar, like you said. And even though it's uncomfortable and dysfunctional mm-hmm. and suffering, it's familiar. And yeah. so to do some of these things in recovery, they're unfamiliar, and yeah. it's it's a little scary. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: And how many codependents do we see working in professions that are helping professions? They do it at work, exactly. Nurses, doctors, therapists—they do it at as teachers. They do it at work, and then they go home and keep doing it. You know. Well,
2: I was uh, the oldest of three um, daughters, and my mother, which I didn't really know it until I got, you know, became an adult, but she was a prescription drug addict and. You know, had a you know personality disorder, narcissism. So I, she was always creating crisis and drama, and I was the one that was always having to run to the rescue, and then also kind of take care of my siblings, you know, to protect them. And um, my dad was a periodic alcoholic, and and so I just when I you know got my counseling degree, I kind of I almost felt like, oh my God, I you know I I can sort of do this in my sleep. I've just been doing this my entire life, mm-hmm. being a caretaker. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I really liked I really liked what 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 um Dave said about kind of having to recognize that he was the problem and, you know, having the courage. So being and I love what you said too, Sandy, which is that, you know, feeling like a martyr and then feeling resentful. So if you're running around, a person in the audience is running around feeling resentful or a martyr. And this person also kind of looks like this. They'll be like, you know, people think they're an angel and they call them. She's such an angel. He's such an angel. And yet these angels are usually pretty darn angry. Mm-hmm. And they don't feel like they can tell people how angry they are because they're supposed to be yeah, we are. the good one, the nice one, the understanding one.
2: Yeah. -hmm. Yeah, we often say resentment is sipping poison and waiting for the other person to (laughs) die. I love that. Yeah, I love that one. I've
0: sipped a lot of poison.
2: (laughs) Yeah, but and I think it's all just awareness. You know, Mm -hmm. being becoming aware of these things and realizing, you know, you know, hitting your own bottoms on Mm -hmm. these, as as Greg was saying, these behaviors, these thoughts, Mm -hmm. these feelings, these attitudes, and just being—I think that's the surrender point of like just being open to change mm-hmm. and you know what do i need to do to change and yeah um because i i you know even in al-anon and and coda well the you know every 12-step program has a the only requirement for membership and in coda it's the only requirement for membership is a desire for healthy and functional relationships with yourself and others healthy functional
0: relationships with yourself and others
2: with yourself and others others. who Mm -hmm. doesn't fit that yeah you know and i I
0: love (laughs) and i i love you know we hear all the time about finding serenity and serenity is i'm not i'm not resentful i'm not feeling like a martyr and if i'm feeling like a martyr feeling resentful i have to remember that i'm the problem i am always the problem even though i want to think it's other people you know having grown up and you know myself become a very well-formed codependent in my younger years. It still sneaks in sometimes. I still have to work with myself constantly to say, are you trying to change this person's behavior, Kelly? They have a right to behave how they want to behave. However, I have a right to serenity. And that being true, I can let them know, you know, if this is what you're going to do, I need to let you know you're doing this and it's affecting my serenity. And I know I have no control over that, but I want to bring it to your awareness.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And usually, you know, when we're judging other people, which is, I think one of the first phases is the way to unhook from that is to kind of ask, you know, whatever we're judging, how am I that way? Oh yeah. And I, mm-hmm. I believe we'll always find, you know, some awareness will come as a result because we're unhooking from the need for that person to change, do anything, mm-hmm. be anything. And then like you said, looking at ourselves
0: mm-hmm.
2: and and now the answers will come mm-hmm. because yeah. Very true. Yeah.
0: Any anything else from you, Greg?
1: I just through this conversation, one thought comes to my mind is generally if, if you've been having problems all your life chances are you're the problem.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a, that person who keeps going through roommates and one day asks themselves, perhaps I'm the problem. <laughs> well,
1: I mean, you can live your, your entire life not not realizing that, and I've lived a long time that way. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I, I was fortunate enough when I was really young, I had a, a, I guess the best term for it is an epiphany, and I realized that you know every time I've been in a bad situation, the common denominator was me. And though yeah. I was excellent at building a very compelling story for my, why you would understand why uh, I was an underachiever or dropped out of high school or used drugs or blah blah blah, is but is I had these reasons, and when it really came down to it, the truth of the matter was is that no, I mean other people have bad things happen to them, and they don't basically blow their life up. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm fortunate that that happened. So, but <laughs> I think you need to have those every couple of years, which uh, I'm, I'm I'm due. Yeah,
2: you know so. those kind of. Well, like and I think insights. what you're saying.
1: Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Sorry.
2: What you're saying, Greg, too, is just that, like we said, it, these patterns become familiar and secure, even though they're dysfunctional and not working yeah. for us. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, and to do something new, that's why even in Al-Anon and they'll say, well, we recommend you attend six meetings before you decide if it's for you. Because what I've noticed is in every recovery person, whether it's the codependent or the addict or alcoholic, when they first get clean or sober in recovery, all they have is the addict voice um, telling, them, you know, telling themselves what to do. And that it's like the addict sits on one shoulder and recovery sits on the other and its recovery voice is volume zero. And so, you know that volume needs to be turned up so that um, you're willing to do stuff that's a little bit weird and uncomfortable. But mm. it's where taking you're direction find help. from
0: sponsors really is very helpful. Yeah. You know, take direction yeah. from sponsor, direction from therapist. Exploring the significance of the all important boundary in relationships, we're going to learn from Dave and his own experiences and how he established them. But this doesn't just relate to people who, you know, living with somebody who's an addict. This also relates to living with somebody who has an eating disorder or somebody who just is, you know, slovenly and doesn't take care of their um side of the, of the house or doesn't produce, you know, sufficient income, isn't sharing in the income if that's the agreement of the couple and that kind of thing. So it can be other things. So for example, when I think of financial, for example, I have think of somebody who says, well, my husband doesn't work, you know, he doesn't provide, I bring in all the money, and, you know, I'm providing and he stays home, and yet she continues this behavior, would you see that as codependent behavior? Yes. Yeah. So she could do one of two things, right? She could leave him, or she could just say, well, I'm going to buy these things for myself and buy myself food and pay my share, you know, of of these expenses, and if you don't have things, and that's for you and you know, that's your problem in a way. So it's there's it doesn't always have to be this huge, you know, I have to leave this person. I just really have to change my behavior in the relationship. And so often the relationship does change.
3: Yeah, I think that's important and also setting boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, two years ago, I didn't know what a boundary was. Mm-hmm. Um
0: That's so important because people will say, well, I have boundary. I set a boundary with them, but they kept doing it. They kept doing it. So that's not setting a boundary, right? Setting a boundary, would you explain how setting a boundary is more about the behavior? Like I can say, don't do this or, or I might leave versus if you do this then I do leave. There's a behavior change that occurs for the person with codependency.
3: Yeah, it could be um someone you're in a relationship with if they for example um have a drinking problem and you say if you unless you stop drinking, you know, I'm going to leave, but they don't stop drinking and you stay in that particular relationship without setting a boundary that in order for us to be together and have a relationship, you need to be sober and stop drinking. So at that point they're just you know, becoming enablers and they're not changing their behavior, which in turn isn't gonna change the other
0: person's behavior. Sandy, what are your thoughts?
2: Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why this is coming to mind, but I was thinking that sometimes I'll say to to people like, you know, there's a couple of codependent jokes. Not <laughs> a lot and of one codependent. Of them jokes. Is, what's the last thing? <laughs> and, you know, sometimes there's the thought that when people are, you know, making their transition or passing away, they have a life review. Their whole life passes before yeah. their eyes. So then I'll say, what's the last thing that passes in front of a codependent's eyes before they die?
0: And what's that?
2: <laughs> Someone else's life. <laughs> oh, good point. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's there's two doors: okay. heaven and lecture on heaven. And all the codependents are lined up at the lecture heaven, on heaven that. door. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very good. <laughs>
0: Instead of choosing yeah. their own heaven, basically is what you're saying. <clears throat> their own serenity. Yes. Yes. So exactly.
2: True. Well, and and you know because codependents can tend to lecture, you know, whenever they're in that martyrdom state and stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So true. Yeah, and that and we that just reminds me of Charlie Brown. Wah 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 wah. Lectures just go in one ear, (laughs) out the other, and I've usually turned out about five words in. (laughs) You know. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. but yes, I mean the other thing with with what Dave was just saying, I do agree that you know when when you set a boundary, like if this you know if this happens, this is what I'm going to do. Then if you don't do it. Then you're basically teaching the person that it doesn't really matter what boundaries I set because you can cross them because yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stay firm in that boundary.
0: Right. So. Yeah, you see, parents do that all the time, yeah. you know. And it's something seems like I work yeah. on a lot these days with parents with younger children, is they'll say, you know, we'll talk about taking away their video game if they don't get their homework done. Done, and the parent will say to me, but they're gonna be upset and mad at me. And I'm like, yes, (laughs) exactly. That's what we want. We want them to not be happy, to not be comfortable, so they'll adapt their behavior. And I know you're all about compassionate parenting, Sandy, but I think you would also agree compassionate parenting is, I know you're upset about this, I understand, and you still need to do your homework before you can play your video game.
2: Yeah, and as a matter of fact, and um I with my own kid um we would often have a meeting where we would where the where he would jump in on what he felt a consequence should be okay and and oftentimes his consequence that he would come up with would be stronger than the one that I would come up with okay. but once you've you know you've set the consequence and so then when their behavior happens and you instill it kindly and firmly there doesn't have to be a big argument right. because the kid knows this is In fact, I even came up with this myself. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Greg, what are you thinking?
2: I don't
1: like people that have strong boundaries.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Why is that, Greg? (laughs) Uh,
1: Because I can't manipulate them. You can't manipulate them. Oh, I hate that. So I I I don't like that. that. I like that. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Especially if it's Uh, your wife. That makes you absolutely crazy, right? right. Yeah. yeah. She should be a pushover. (laughs) Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Also, I was thinking, you have to have some level of ego strength to, to... to stick to your boundary you know and it and usually a lot of times when you make a boundary it's more uncomfortable for you than the person you're you're telling the boundary to which is i think really interesting because it's it you know that's a it's a difficult thing to set a boundary and really mean it because it's part of it is is usually it's with a person that you know that you have some type of affection or love or in relationship with and and so it even makes it a little bit harder, you know and and then the other two I, I ran into where people set boundaries just kind of just to control a situation and that that's a little upsets me a little bit. you
0: mean setting boundaries you know? in a in a, in an unhealthy way like what yeah, well,
1: setting a boundary that that like it doesn't seem to even be a reasonable boundary other than the oh, fact sure. that, yeah, it's you know, so. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm confused about the whole boundary yeah. Well,
0: thing. yeah. Give us an example so Santa can speak to that about when somebody sets a boundary that's unhealthy and doesn't really reflect the situation, like adults.
2: An adult setting uh, boundary. Wow, goal. that's
1: really hard because it's like
2: I was going to yeah, jump yeah. in because oh, what Sorry. I thought of was be like like parents that like will say you're grounded for a month. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. a month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, really? What you know? Mm-hmm. No. Nobody's gonna learn anything from that, you know. Yeah, so.
0: it's too long of a period of time, unless it's some really yeah. big infraction, like I stole the neighbor's car, <laughs> you know, something like that. Yeah, that's a teenager. Yeah. So a month is different than a five-year-old. Um, but no, I'm thinking like right. an adult, and then there'll be. Oh an adult sandy, where would an adult how do you set like a boundary that's too ridiculous? because codependents have a hard time setting a boundary and setting a little tiny reasonable boundary feels like like they're doing this huge thing. They'll say that's not too mean. I'll go, no, it's not too mean what's a what's an example of how they know that that boundary is not not too much? Gosh, that's,
2: that's a hard that is question. A good question. yeah. That's a them. hard question, yeah, I mean, ideally, I think if who's ever setting the boundary, then the recipient, if they really feel like it's extreme, would comment on that and would say mm-hmm. that seems really extreme, and I don't, yeah, I don't know why you're doing that, and is that yeah. what you know can we negotiate? I would say that I would say, or that, or I would say that's ideally? true in a
0: healthy but, relationship, but if I'm trying to set a boundary with somebody who is who is having exhibiting negative behavior, even a healthy boundary, I think they're going to push back because I've never set a boundary before. Like I'm changing the yeah. relationship. Well, I mean,
2: I think, you know, like people who stop talking to people. Yeah. You know, who cut off all communication. Uh-huh. Like they think they're setting a boundary mm-hmm. for whatever That's an excellent their example. slight mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. or something like that. and And yet, you know, nothing can get resolved if there's, then that just becomes abusive in itself. Yeah. We talk with
0: clients about that. How I think personally that somebody who stops talking to somebody has now taken all the power and control. And I think it's one of the most abusive things you can do to somebody is not talk to them. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Well, that's more like punishment rather than a boundary, right?
2: Well, yeah. Yeah. And then ask yourself too. Right.
1: I'll ask you guys a question. Who's the boundary for? Is it the person who's setting the boundary or is it for the person that, that is is uh, susceptible right. to the boundary? So they for-
0: might say they're setting a boundary, but really they're withdrawing as we know that's one type of, of codependent behavior is to withdraw
2: right yeah, yeah. and well, then I you know I have an example uh, that I know of where um, a son got married to someone and that person the son is so codependent to their new wife who's now convinced him that their entire family is against her. And so he's cut off all communication with the family.
0: Oh, so painful. To brighten things up, let's hear what Dave's path to recovery look like.
3: Codependency is just as deadly as any type of addiction. And... um A lot of times, uh, especially lately in my Codependence Anonymous meetings, whether the co-ed or or the men's, there's a lot of addicts or alcoholics whose therapists have said, I think you should check out a Codependence Anonymous meeting because that's the underlying theme. That's the early trauma. There's a reason why um, we have an addiction. And it's not just because all of a sudden we decided to become an addict one day. There's underlying trauma that we didn't want to deal with that was been numbing for me thank god that i didn't become addicted to drugs or alcohol but i became addicted to work or exercise and stuff like that when when i was growing up with my with my parents so my dad was the ultimate codependent me and my sister were successful in athletics and from the outside we were the all-american family you know it was like everything was great and then then lo and behold you know after 22 years that i figure i married my mom and and uh but that relationship from the outside with with the children looked like you know oh my gosh you, what you guys got divorced no one could believe it because from the outside everyone thought everything was great but it really wasn't and you really don't know what people are going through or exactly what's happening because um we're really good at not are at not hiding, we are good at hiding our true feelings and not letting people know what's yeah. really going on with our lives. And now I'm much more open with the people that I yeah. meet.
0: If you could say one thing to a listener out there who might have been in your situation, acting very codependently right now, um, you know, trying to control somebody's behavior miserable themselves, unhappy, and saying, if only they would change, then my life would be better, which of course we know isn't true. What would be the one piece of advice, one thing you'd want to say to them, Dave?
3: The one piece of advice would, um,
0: wow. Or a couple pieces of advice, several things.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Would be to just focus on yourself um, and get in tune Um, with what your wants and needs are, um, you know, and do more of what brings you joy. Instead of trying to make everyone else happy, you need to make yourself happy, and you have to love yourself before you can love anyone else. Um, And it's a lot less work just to focus and worry about yourself than it is, you know, trying to worry about other people and control other people.
0: And what about external resources? What are some external resources? be they things that you read, groups you went to, um, other things like that that you think are very helpful for people in recovering from codependency?
3: Um, so codependence anonymous. Um, I do a a men's group every week, which is very beneficial. i I believe um, that kind of the men need to do the men meetings and and the And the women need to do the women meetings. I think because you can just be more honest and more open with those groups, whether you're male or female. Um, And you, I've met men who have a lot of recovery time, and I want what they have because obviously they know how they got to where they are for a reason. Um, So when I started, and I would, you know, my sponsor um, has like thirty years recovery, and so I. I want what he has and that's um that's really important and I look up to those guys there's a, there's a couple um guys with a lot of time in the group and I've met some really great people um you know that's probably there's guys that I talk to every day now and that I uh, you know meet once a week and I've met I have relationships now that I never thought that I would have. I never thought two years ago, if you told me, Dave, you're going to be doing a men's group, you know, a men's only group, whether it be Zoom or in person or at a park on a Thursday morning, um, I would have said you're crazy because that just isn't me. But it's, mm. it's changed my life. And meeting other people with similar problems who will just listen and not be judged has, has done um, has really changed my life
0: recovery p- is possible for people when they're willing to be vulnerable, when they're willing to really be a, be brave, because that's what takes courage is being vulnerability, being vulnerable and talking t- about what's really happening instead of that codependent behavior, trying to cover it up and make sure it's a look okay and try to control it rather than just truly being open and honest about it is so important.
3: Yeah, that was the hardest thing for me because there would be situations when I would want to control it and I didn't and I would have a lot of anxiety and and feel vulnerable and that was that's not a good feeling and something I'd never really dealt with my entire life um but like anything the more you do it the more you practice it and the more you're aware of it it gets easier and easier and um you know it this all started too my recovery um when I was um right in the middle of a divorce so it uh kind of went hand in hand, um, but definitely helped me deal with that um, and to get through that traumatic experience, along with um, just focusing on myself.
0: Sandy, just to close out here, um, real quick, would you tell us um, if you had some advice to give to codependents, what do you think is the most important thing you would be able to say to codependents out there listening or people who are wondering if they're codependent What is one of the most important kinds of pieces of advice or pieces of advice you give them?
2: Uh, Well, I think once you have that awareness, then what I do invite people to do is like, you know, just, go. I mean, you can find anything online, go online, do a, do a self-assessment. Am I codependent? Mm -hmm. Look into CODA. Read. There's so much great resources and books out there on, you know, Mm -hmm. um, beyond codependency, codependent no more, facing codependence, you know, do some reading, do some. um, I had a client that that happened to, and all of a sudden she started reading the uh, Melody Uh Beatty's book, um, Codependent No More, and she goes, oh, my God. And yeah, it was just yeah. like start answering a thousand questions that she had about herself. Talk to a therapist. And maybe you know, looking you, to CODA, look into code. People say, Well, into I'm just Allen not a group person. Just, I can't do yeah. groups.
0: Go talk to a therapist. Yeah. You know talk your to insurance will cover this usually. And if not, there's low cost ther- therapy available as well. Yeah. So thank you so much, Dr. Sandy, yeah. for being with us today. Um, and Greg, thank yeah. you. Greg, is there anything else you would say to those thank people you. who are struggling with codependency? What would be your piece of advice be?
1: Uh, you're not alone.
0: You're not alone.
1: <laughs> no, so and that's part of it too. Is sometimes you feel kind of alone in it. You're doing stuff you don't quite understand, you know, and realize that that you know uh, that we've all had these things going on. Everybody deals with it differently. Even their experiences or slash trauma is different to each one. But it, in some sense, it's individualized. But collectively, no one's kind of alone in the other stuff. Mm-hmm. and the other part of it too is is that this is you can recover from it mm-hmm. you can get these issues processed mm-hmm. you can move forward out of it but it is not easy right right <laughs> you know and but mm-hmm. i i think another you know anything in life is really worth anything right. is really is not it doesn't come easy thank you
0: and I really love so, what, what you said Sandy and, and Greg you guys were talking about about how a person a person who's suffering in codependency is feeling like they go between being a martyr and feeling resentment right Sandy So to pay attention, if you're a person out there who notices you're feeling like a martyr, like you're the victim and angry and resentful at other people, but kind of keeping it all inside and acting like you're not maybe that you might really want to take a look at that and go get some help. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Caveman and Counselor, where we bring you a unique blend of professional insights and practical perspectives on behavioral health. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to share this episode with others. And don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date on future episodes.
1: And hey, for those who'd like to support our work, we have a Patreon page where you can make a donation and gain access to exclusive content. Thank you for listening. Until next time, remember, take care of your mental health.